Welcome to School of Movies. Into the Spider-Verse. My name is Peter Parker. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I saved the city, fell in love, then I saved the city again and again and again. Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. Spider-Man swings in once a day, zip zaps up in his little mask and answers to no one. I love you, moms. Yeah, I know, Dad. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I, I want to hear it. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. Ladies and gentlemen. My name is Miles Morales. I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. Hey, guys. Who are you? I'm Gwen Stacy. I'm from another, another dimension. How many more spider people are there? Hey, fellas. Hello. This could literally not get any weirder. It can get weirder. Okay. We have an absolutely packed show for you tonight in every possible way. And this is the best way to round off the year, both taking in this delightful film and talking about it. With us this time are, back at last after too long away, a previous special guest on our Amazing Spider-Man 2 show, along with Wonder Woman, Batman v Superman, and Suicide Squad, it is the amazing Bob Movie Bob Chipman. Hello, Bob. Hey, guys. How's it going? Happy holidays. From our Babadook show and the BoJack Horseman episodes, Holly Wu actress who was actually in Venom, the sensational Maya Santandria. Hello, Maya. Hey, guys. How's it going? Welcome, as usual, my wife and co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hello. And her amazing friends. Three regular, three regular voices that you will know and love, now appearing on more shows than I can count. It's the superior Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Hello, Brendan. Hello. You're making me blush over here. The spectacular Karen Nagisa. Hey. And the ultimate... Debbie Morse of Sequentially Yours. Call me Gwen. <laughs> okay. Don't so you mean Gwanda? <laughs> Into the Spider-Verse is feasibly the best Spider-Man-related project in a year that also included Spider-Man on the PS4 and Infinity War. It is arguably the best Spider-Man movie in 14 years, debatably the best Spidey movie ever, potentially one of the best Spider-Man stories in any medium, and many other superlatives that I won't utter, lest I shoot my webbing all up over the joint. So, (laughs) I am so tempted to reel off a six-page epic about everything I loved, and this is something that I tend to do as part of our show, when a movie really hits me. That way I can blend in with our discussion the long-form essay style of the kind of YouTube videos that I would do regularly, were it not for everything about YouTube. But but this time around, I'm trying my level best to be as generous as possible. I have handed the job of asking questions to you, girls, guys, and otherwise, our gentle listeners, and my active task is to facilitate the conveying of those questions to our spider squad of guests, in the hope that all those points that I really want to hit, get hit. Remember, you can ask these on Twitter, at School of Movies, and use the hashtag SOMHandsUp. So let us start right away with first impressions and animation. Quark asks, what is it about the Spider-Man as a franchise that makes it work well here? And can it work with other series? So the unique aesthetic of this, 
why did it work with Spidey over other ones? Now, some people have asked similar questions. Irvin Kidd asks, is the animation style one you'd like to see applied to other films in the future? I find 3D computer animation very tiresome at this point, so I was happy to see someone doing something new. Because I was talking to Daniel Floyd about this, and I asked him, I said, when I first saw the trailer, that the teaser trailer, in fact, quite a while back, the, it, had this, it had this stuttering quality to the animation, which unsettled me immediately. Um, people have noted that the Dragon Prince did something similar for them, and not coincidentally, the Netflix series The Dragon Prince, which is still really great, reminded me visually of the 2003 Spider-Man New Adventures animated series with Neil Patrick Harris that everyone has now forgotten. Yet... When I finally saw the movie, I was able to settle in, and pretty soon I positively adored the visual style. But the dragon print still bothered me in the last episode of season one. So is there any aesthetic or technical reason you guys think that might be? What is going on under the hood that makes things easier on the eyes? At least for most people, because some people still had a problem with it. I think it's fair to say that this might be one of the reasons why Spider-Man is particularly well suited to this kind of style in that he is constantly moving anyway. So your eyes are jumping around the screen all the time to keep tabs on him. So the fact that the animation is a little bit juddery as a stylistic choice fits quite well with his motion. I mean, that might be overly simplifying, but I think that might be a contributing factor. Okay. The short answer would be that the reason that it works with Spider-Man in this case is that they executed it well. The people animating this particular version of it went with the style of animation and they did it well. I think that if they had done a bad version of what they had gone with, we might be sitting here going, why didn't this work for Spider-Man? Like, it looks good, but like, in theory, I, I think why they went with and I mean, there's like five or six different animation styles in this on purpose. But uh, the the dynamism that they went with for this, one reason that it fits with this character in the, the main line with the, in, in the, the Miles Morales universe, where you have this sort of a, like pseudo graffiti style, which is what they're trying to emulate, where you have like the, the missing frames of animation, which is uh, kind of like an, an artificially borrowed trick from uh, from old anime where they're using artificially fewer frames of animation than, than you otherwise would is that you get a sense of dynamic movement they're kind of trying to like unhook the camera a little bit that works for a character that they're having kind of run between buildings bounce off of stuff swing from things you know where it's one step in between just flying around between things and walk on the ground because he's on the ropes it's uh, it, it's similar to when they talked about when they did the Disney Tarzan movie and they had to figure out a, a reason for how this guy was going to move and they didn't just want to have him swing on the vines because we'd seen that and they figured, you know what we'll do? We'll have him like skateboard on his feet because that's new. And that was the visual reference point they went with was what was at the time the new phenomenon of kids skateboarding with the miniature cameras on their helmets but it, it is very dynamic, and, and it works. So I think thematically it works, too, because they set it up right away that Miles, his life moves very fast. It's constantly jumping from he's at home, he's at school, he's going between his different classes. Things seem to move very quickly in his life anyway. And then that kind of all comes together once we get to the interdimensional spider men and women coming together. Yeah. 
I think part of why it works so well is because it's so purposeful about bringing the kind of staccato visualization of a comic book into a moving visual medium. They have most of the characters in Miles' universe particularly animating on the twos, so you get kind of this sort of stuttery, almost looking like stop-motion animation, but it makes all of their poses really pop in the way that you see on the page of a comic book. And then they really drive that home where they have like the big like Bill Sinkevich like splash page action beats where just all of a sudden it turns directly into a comic book panel. Yeah. So I think that once once you have the, the chance to like really see, I mean, they really just nail that in that opening where um, Spider-Man is get well, Chris Spider-Man, the, the Spider-Man of Miles Universe is giving his his kind of like, hey, let's go through this one more time. And they show you like these beats that you're familiar with some of the visual language and the the scenes. But then you get to see it filtered through this animation style. So it, it gives you a chance to kind of settle in. OK, here's what we're doing. And I've gotten the chance to see here's why we're doing it that way. I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds of the animation just in general, but I could just like nerd out entirely about this for a solid 30 minutes. Just the fact that they animate Penny Parker on the threes like you do in anime for Summer First sequences i was losing my full mind you can see this in, in wreck it ralph when they have like additional and missing animation frames for the characters that are supposed to be older games mm-hmm. that, that that works as well it's in the first trailer when when miles like turns around to see who's behind him with the uh with the the blacks and we get the the first look at the the black spider-man mask it's not a smooth turnaround it's a direct to i'm looking backwards i'm looking forwards now i'm directly turned around in the face like it would be like a one-two comic panel shot you can't do that with automated smooth computer animation transition or with live action without like putting it like now you'd have to put in like a flash or some kind of sound effect to let people know that that wasn't an editing mistake but like here it works because your mind gets acclimated to the fact that there's a bit of a start stop to their to, to the way that their animation moves and it fits and it works and and it uh, goes together and it's uh I mean, it, it the whole movie has. If you if I didn't know that this was a Lord and Miller movie, you'd be able to tell because it has a lot of their same ethos of kind of working backwards from a premise. They they're constantly taking on these projects where they have this uh, property or a concept that seems very like an, an enforced part of it, and building a, a a point to it in like okay this is about legos so i guess this has to be about proving what you're made of and building up to something and like oh son of a bitch i guess you found something and now they've got this business about you know a team of different spider-men so we can have a, a, a team movie so okay i guess this is about diversity and there everyone can be the hero and somehow it works as a real thing and it, it's quite a thing it really is it deliberately assumes a frame rate and tangibility comparable with stop motion, the way the Lego movie also did, but that is not all. There's a fluidity and natural quirks of human movement behind the animation. It's slightly more stylized than performance capture. Performance capture always has that uncanny valley effect where, um, you know, even the absolute best of it, you're kind of like squinting to see the person behind it. Mm. But because what we're being presented with is hyper stylized, we're not trying quite so hard there's a slight deformation of the bodies in terms of that they're um, like very gangly in places and miles has a big head relative to his spindly body peter b parker has this triangular 
upper body shape, accentuating the classic Spider-Man costume. The, the kingpin's just a giant breeze block. Mm. <laughs> it, it was very, very uh, characteristic of him, though. The second you saw his silhouette, mm-hmm. Myra went, Fisk! She knew exactly <laughs> who he was before <laughs> they'd even really brought him in. But the, the flip side of that comparison with uh, performance capture is when you have performance capture and then you're animating you often lose some of the hyper-realism that you could potentially have because you end up bringing animation down to the restrictions of a human actor. Mm. TV shows like The Dragon Prince and uh, like if you go all the way back to the original um, uh, Spider-Man New Animated Adventures from 2003, they are hamstrung severely by a, a, a lower-grade tech that they're actually able to use. There's, it feels very video gamey, very almost PlayStation 2-era video gamey, like, um, I want to say Tales of Vesperia or something. Like It's all taking place in an RPG, rather than feeling super cinematic the way that this did. you got these keyframe-animated 3D polygonal models attempting to emulate human movement. And especially in the early days, coming off little Robotronic. And some characters are obviously more convincing than others. General Amaya in The Dragon Prince is deaf, so she uses sign language to express herself. And so is an incredibly dynamic visual character. But by and large, when you've taken in, tangled and examined the animation there and the lush environments and the nuance of movement, watching 3D animation on TV is always going to be a step back. I got some further notes on animation here. I asked one or two uh, specialists who couldn't be present tonight what they thought, and here's what they said. Daniel Floyd... I hope Mm. this encourages other studios to attempt more bold visual choices with their animated films in the future. 3D animation has far more aesthetic potential than the mainstream 3D film scene has been using. Josh Garrity says, I think something that's kind of amazing is that with Penny Parker and Peter Porker, it's not just their designs that evoke the kind of animation they're inspired by, but even stuff like their frame rates. Penny Parker's lower frame rate compared to everyone else reflecting the lower frame rate of anime compared with most Western 2D animation will probably be obvious to everyone. But the fact that Porker seems to be at a slightly higher frame rate than everyone else reflecting the bigger budget style of old Warner animation is an extra layer of brilliant. Then later on, even the framing changes to reflect these design origins. Long static shots of Penny as she grieves over her robot buddy father big bounce dynamic shots of porker as he takes out scorpion this isn't just a film made by spidey fans these are people who are deeply entrenched in the history of animation this is one of the things that makes me hopeful that there's not much chance the studio machine is going to take a look at this and go right let's copy what they're doing because they're not going to be able to you need to be too much of an expert to put something like this together you can't copy love that is also very true. Two of the most visually arresting animated films of the past four years were overseen by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the other being The Lego Movie. Uh, these films were not just fun to look at, but fascinating and captivating, with a way of drawing in the young and the old, like Aladdin did in 92 and Toy Story did back in 95. Although The Lego Movie didn't do that much insane bank, it's just that everybody who saw it loved it. Now, we're in an age where the output of Disney and Pixar are often indistinguishable and interchangeable. This speaks to what you were talking about earlier. And almost every studio seems to be pushing towards the middle with cute, stylized, very colorful character models, which means homogeneity is just as prevalent as throughout the 20th century when Disney ruled the roost and any other attempts at doing an animated film looked very much like what they could do. 
there were a couple of like stop motion things in in like Scandinavia, but they were not on the world stage. Like when when Don Bluth said, "I'm going to hack out my own studio with blackjack and hookers," he went and did <laughs> the same thing that Disney does, and in some cases more successfully. I cannot fathom why any studio would throw Lord and Miller off one of their up-and-coming films, replace them with an old reliable fellow, and then proceed to make the ugliest, most washed-out, personality-free Star Wars ever put to film. That is the second worst firing that will never not bother me, and yet still mm-hmm. trailing way behind Disney's first worst firing this year. Okay. Moving on from animation to characters. Toby Jungius asks, As far as what we have shown in Into the Spider-Verse, what characteristics distinguish Shamik Moore's Miles Morales from Peter Parker, the Peter that we've already known for many, many years? And how do they help him be the hero that he becomes? We got a couple more questions about Miles, which I'm going to fire down the tunnel to you now so you can sort of play with the many various answers as well. Cubano Reeves asks, Miles is 50% black, 50% Hispanic. Despite this, the film and its characters treat him as though he is about 95% black, 5% Hispanic. Do you think this was a bit of accidental genius there, as that's how most people who don't know him will initially consider him? And Andy Rodriguez asks, how does Miles Morales' biracial identity add to the dual nature of Spider-Man? Also, perhaps as well, what does a queer reading add? And I'm going to add one final one, for, uh, especially for Bob. Is this whole film basically a remake of Nightbreed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... You know, it, it's... Well, that's really good. It's... Uh, it's, it's uh, well, no, you it, started it. You, you were basically sort of like... Everyone always goes on about Avatar being Pocahontas... But yeah. no one ever says it's Nightbreed. We'd never seen Nightbreed, and then we saw it thanks to you. It's, it's really good. We saw the uh, original cut. We've yet to see the super duper Starship Trooper cut. But uh, yeah, folks, if like uh, we, we haven't got time to talk about Nightbreed, but it does have quite a few similarities. Yeah, there there is there is a yeah, yeah, a, a, a little bit. Uh... Nightbreed, in a nutshell, is teenage boy gets in a horrible accident, stumbles into a world of scary monsters. Turns out he is a scary monster, and these are his people, whom he then has to defend. The advantage to, to to working in a movie with a character like Miles Morales is that he he was created on purpose as a three dimensional character in the 21st century, hmm, hmm. as opposed to when you do a movie about Peter Parker and you're trying to keep to the origin and you're dealing with like 90 percent of other comic book characters where you're dealing with a really quick sketch of a character that was put together over like a couple of days by guys in their 40s trying to work out what seven-year-olds might want to read about the experience of an imaginary 15-year-old and not really thought out all that much. So, like, you go go back and track through the, like, the development of what we think of as Spider-Man's character. There's a reason he doesn't make sense. You know, it's because he, he was thrown together not really to make sense as a character, just as an idea of a character. I mean, the, the first Spider-Man story is a one-off. He under he goes through his entire character arc in one story that's not necessarily meant to continue after that. It was the and, last issue of Amazing Fantasy. They yeah. had nothing... They were going to get rid of the book anyway, and they just let Stan Lee throw something together, because they could. Yeah, here here's a... Hey, here's a teenage superhero story with a downer ending. There's your lesson, kids. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you if you get superpowers, don't be a dick about it, or else. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's Spider-Man's story. I think. I mean, it's it's probably fair to say that none of us are, are ideally placed to comment 
internally on the the racial elements of Miles' character mm. or or the the diversity that comes in there. But I think from the fact that. Spider-Man is and has always been seen as this ultimate representation of New York. And this was something that was commented on when Homecoming came out. You can't do a whiter-than-white New York and have Mm. that feel authentic. Mm. Not anymore. So to have Miles uh, not only a a character of colour but also of mixed identity... There are so many people in this city and this city is representative of the wider geek world generally. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a, a, this is here and it's not going anywhere. And I love that, the fact that it's it's kind of up and in your face <clears throat> about it. The having Miles be a, a child living in a melting pot that is of two different cultures really helps underline because, yes, Spider-Man does have... Like, he's all about dual identities and dualness and balancing two things. And Miles, you get to play with the sort of background concept that he's he's having his life pulled in two different directions in terms of where he wants to go at the beginning of the movie because he's got his passion for street art and he really feels comfortable in his home neighborhood. But he's also going to this different school where he feels like an outsider and he's not sure he belongs there. But you've kind of in the... In, the very like opening like scene where you're seeing miles you kind of plant the seed that he's already acclimated being a child of two different places and cultures and um possibly belief systems so you get to play with the idea that adaptability especially for him is if you'll pardon the pun it's not a bug it's a feature and so being able to build from that you know the fact that you know his family is bilingual he speaks you know spanish and english interchangeably um it's not subtitled it's just a very you know quick sort of thing that he's able to do on the fly all the way up until where he finally becomes spider-man it's it's a matter of like assimilation and adaptation that you know that becomes his greatest strength of being able to take these things that maybe they don't go together but as it happens it was chocolate and peanut butter the whole time Mm -hmm. I think that kind of adds to his powers, too, and figuring out what his powers are. They're both the invisibility and the ability to shock people, so to repel people away. They seem like they're different, but at the same time, when you think about it, there are similar things going on there. He's able to disappear and also kind of shock people away from him, kind of repel people away from him. So there's that sort of leads into where his powers come from as well. There's always a sense that he can kind of disappear into the background whenever he wants to, but also push people out of his sphere if he needs to. The psychology is the same, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, And as to the sort of differences between uh, Peter and Miles, I think it helps to look sort of at the catchphrases that are associated with them in the sense that Peter's is obviously the great power, great responsibility one. Miles's, however, tends to be more a hero isn't the one who always wins. It's the one who always tries. And that's very much the theme of this movie. And that's where they're focusing that it's the continuing to try regardless of where whether he thinks he can do it or not that makes Miles different from Peter. Peter is very much propelled by his own guilt and by this sense of responsibility. And Miles is more, he's more um, focused on what it means to, what it means to have an ability, even if you don't have power that you still have to try. 
He's also a fearful character. And Sharon and I watched a film uh, by Pixar a few uh, months ago called The Good Dinosaur. And we did a show on it immediately afterwards because we had a lot to say. It is how you don't do a fearful character. It's got this annoying, drippy little uh, green dinosaur called Arlo in it who spends the whole movie just afraid of everything. And you'll find out why that doesn't work when we release that particular show. The short of it is, Arlo doesn't have much of anything else to allow you to invest in his character. Miles has a ton more. Miles is scared most of the way through Into the Spider-Verse, and yet he's totally relatable. You can completely understand every single one of his fears. It's so daunting what he's being handed. So not only does Miles have to deal with the with great ability comes great accountability that Peter deals with, Miles also has to be able to actually get up and do the thing in the first place, to to actually not retreat from it. And since one of his powers is to turn invisible, it's like he's actually naturally keyed into going away and hiding. Mm. And not to mention the fact that the the elements of his character that play into his racial background, the elements of his character that play into the fact that his father is in the police force, he's been raised in an environment where fear is not necessarily that he's been taught to be afraid but that fear is always there in the background even if it's just at the level of being aware of danger which his dad will have to be as part of his job it's not uncommon for parents who have roles in you know that kind of environment to accidentally teach their kids to be scared of lots of things because they're aware of of danger on a different level and i think they want them to be vigilant and it turns into tends to turn into fear exactly it becomes hyper vigilance and i think this might be an appropriate time to mention my generational theory of spider-man can you see a real world generational parallel within the characters and by that i mean gen x millennials etc indeed so, what so this was this was my theory that the various spider-mans that get pulled from the various universes are representative of different generations perspective on a single superhero and it that for me really emphasized the idea that a superhero is for the ages it's the that they have superheroes have now passed into mythology mm. and so here you have the examples of peter b parker who is a young end gen xer cynical and slightly bitter and rather pissed off with the world and kind of slobbing his way through it. and Previously special, now no longer special. Yeah, and I've, I've got to be honest. <laughs> I kind of feel him there. Um, and then you've got... Entering middle age spread. Exactly. And then you've got the, uh, the original Peter, who starts the movie off, who... Chris Pine Peter. Yeah, Chris Pine Peter, yeah. who I would place at the early stage millennials... If you're going to be looking at actual ages here, I think you're going to need to add sort of five to ten years to them to make it fit. It's not an exact fit. It's not an exact science, yeah. no. But, but Peter's attitude is heroic in the very typical heroic sense. He is self-sacrificial. He's optimistic, optimistic very dedicated to what he's doing, and it gets him killed. And I think there's, there's a kind of sense at the moment that early-end millennials have kind of got thrown under the bus. 
Or under the giant pile of rubble. Or under the giant pile of rubble, <laughs> indeed. Which yeah. then doesn't act to prevent his death. Absolutely. But the the optimism now is focused on the kids, the the young end millennials, which I would say Miles and, and Gwen, Gwen yeah. are representative of. They've got a very proactive way of, of dealing with things, especially Gwen, and a a sense of being very much themselves, that it's not about fitting into a template that society has said is okay, that it's about going out there and saying, well, this is me and this is how I save the world. So, You could add to that uh, mix Penny's most definitely uh, um, a modern-day kid. Oh, Penny's iGen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's Embedded yeah. in the technology. Potentially even younger than them insofar yeah. as that she just knows tech and, and is totally at home with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And um, manages to maintain an optimism and like holds on to her personal side of things mm. while all the shit's going down. She doesn't let yeah. the rest of it bother her because she can't. She's got to have this giant armoured suit because otherwise the entire world's going to crush her. It's too dangerous. Mm. And then you got uh, Spider-Noir, who's like this Spider-Man that never was, the Golden Age Spider-Man. Ties in with Stan Lee himself, insofar as like he's like this mm. greatest generation, just kind of like, we're still here in the shadows, just ushering you forwards. Mm, absolutely. Still heavily influenced by the Depression. Anyone want to interpret <laughs> Spider-Ham? Yeah, or? Porker was the one I couldn't find a Well, uh, technically Aunt May, Aunt May goes in with the, 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 the Golden Age, or slightly younger Slight, than that. Yeah, slightly yeah. younger than that. I think if it, she's, she's a benevolent boomer, I think. Benevolent boomer? Mm. Benevolent <laughs> boomer. <laughs> and there are many, up, but they do exist. Since boomers grew up with Looney Tunes, does that mean that Spider-Ham is her animus? Ooh. Oh, I, I want that to be the case now. basically teenage male wish fulfillment, specifically white teenage male wish fulfillment. And it is as not that, as, as a woman, it was very, did not resonate with me. Um, I did quite like Tom Holland as Spider-Man, but Miles, Miles resonates with me a lot. He feels like a 
regular, real kid. Like, he's he's not overconfident, but he's not bumbling to the point of being unable to function in society. Mm. He feels like kids I've met today. Like, they've got some stuff figured out, but there's a lot they don't know. And they're aware... They're aware of how things are today and I, I love that that he feels like like he reminds me of myself when I was around that age a lot because he is the only Spider-Man of the different Spider-Verse Spiders people that is dealing with taking up a legacy mantle um, every single one of the other people has always been the only Spider-Man of their world and to them they see everything that's happened to them as being okay, I now have no choice but to be the hero, and it's it's got like, like this great reflection in how every single one of them is. I will stay behind immediately when there's a question of you know who needs to self sacrifice. Oh, I will self sacrifice. I have no choice but to do that. Miles, the movie gives him plenty of chances to choose whether or not to be good. He feels the you know he feels compelled by having made a promise to. Um, Peter Parker Prime. What, what are we calling Blonde Parker? Are we calling him Peter Parker Prime ben or Riley. Chris Pine Spider-Man? You just call him Peter Parker. Peter Parker Pine. Okay, yeah. well, I'm just going to call him Chris Spider-Man. Um, so, <laughs> right, anyway, so the the promise he makes compels him, but he's also given an out because the the very Spider-Man who tell uh, you know who's like kind of mentoring him basically takes away you know, the, the thing, and he doesn't have the goober anymore, and he could just ev off and go be a normal kid, but because being Miles's age and being, like, the, the type of person who is dealing with the world right now, you do have to choose whether or not you're going to try and make the world a better place, and the movie is all about him choosing to do that and choosing to be good and choosing to make good on the promise that he made, uh, even though he could just ignore it. But he chooses to, like, make the world he lives in a better place. And it's that, that kind of, like, active sort of thing that I think really helps give him that extra punch. He chooses yeah. to try. Exactly. It's, it's like, like Howard said, that the choosing to try. He does feel so much more like a, like a real person, like a real young person, that, that he fits together so well compared to most other versions of, P, of Peter Parker that we see. Like, when people say, you know, Peter Parker, the normal version is... A teenage male wish fulfillment. It's 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 even a little bit worse than that. He's retroactive wish fulfillment of adult men of of like working shit out from when they were teenagers. You know, like especially like the the early model Peter Parker. Which whatever you say about how much influence was in there, there's a lot more of Steve Ditko in the 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 the, the angry first couple issues Peter Parker character wise. Than, than there does seem to be of where Stan Lee was coming from as he was influencing more of the, the direction of it as it went on. And it's it's a really kind of resentful, you know, angry, grr, no one was nice to me when I was a nerdy young guy kind of thing. Yeah. and More like what the question would eventually become. Right, yeah. And uh, whereas when when they were... And I mean, the, the, the Mark I version of Miles in the Ultimate Comics has a few issues in his writing and whatnot, because this is, you know, older white guys trying to write young black guys. Surprise doesn't totally come through, but, uh, you know, by the time they, they've got it to hear, it's been polished out. I'm sure they had people on writing staff, you know, to go through this with a fine comb and say, no, not that, not that. Yep. Fix that. 
but it, it comes through as feeling about as authentic as any movie's version of a young person is going to feel. And it's, I, I appreciate that they didn't try too hard to, you know, like grab really specific cultural stuff for all of the alignment metaphors of, okay, this is why he doesn't fit in and that's why he's not Spider-Man. They went in for, okay, give him a, a hobby that relates to this. Give him, a, you know, this business of that he's going from the, the, his neighborhood to the rich school and that's why he's pulled between two different things and that's why he's already used to having two identities. It, it's a very sharply observed thing in that regard and it really comes together. I was also very. I, I, there was an interesting decision that his universe, Spider-Man, when we finally, when we meet him, and as we figure out who he is, he's presented as like the prime Spider-Man, but he's also not as familiar to us as the loser one that eventually shows up. That is very mm-hmm. clearly okay. No, this is the guy you're more familiar with. This is more the guy from the Sam Raimi movies and the comics. And you can see when they cut back to his universe, it looks just a little bit more like ours than the one that we're spending most of the movie in is a really interesting story decision. Sharon, you said that uh, Chris Pine Parker reminded you of the video game version. Yes. Having just recently watched you play it and and do our show on it, his his age fits, uh, his optimism is in character with that. Mm. He looks slightly different, but... I think that that's superficial. Just superficial, yeah. yeah. But that was the Spider-Man that he reminded me the most of. Mm. <clears throat> uh, next question is that it's a double header again. Uh, Jesse Ferguson asks: uh, A number of characters were reimagined for Spider-Verse. In your opinions, which ones stuck the landing, and did any miss the mark? Personally, there was one particular that I'm dying to talk about, but it'd be Spoiler City. That one, uh, as you just told me on uh, Twitter, is Doc Ock. I don't know whether he means <laughs> that she missed the mark or she the reimagining really hit it out of the park. I don't know. You, you have to spoil it for me, Jesse. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't ask. <laughs> Greg Nog asks, how successful do you think the movie was at introducing five new spider people, especially for their target audience of kids and their parents who may never have heard of Miles or Gwen before? I can answer Jesse. Like He and I were talking privately. He absolutely loves Doc Ock, so I can, okay. I can clear that up. All of these characters really really sort of worked for what they were used for within the context of the movie. Um, middle-aged Spider-Man and Gwen and Miles are very much the focuses of it. And then, you know, Penny and Spider-Ham and Noir and all of them are sort of are sort of pushed to the background. But you know, the other... Yeah, exactly. They But they do what they need to do. As far as Doc Ock goes, that Doc Ock was phenomenal. I absolutely yeah. loved her. I loved this version of the Prowler. This is the first time that I think I was genuine. I felt the Prowler was a genuine threat as opposed to sort of an also-ran in the Spider-Man canon, either Hobie Brown or Aaron Davis Prowler. The Prowler has never been a particularly like noteworthy villain. He's, he's in yeah. this because of how he ties into Miles. And, you know, if you don't know that that's a thing, that's a huge surprise. Both times I've seen it, clearly, most of the... Because, you know, these are comics published after the 90s, so no one has read them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So so, uh, every time the the reveal on that is a huge reveal. And, you know, I know it's coming, but, you know, most of the audience clearly does not. And it's a big, big deal. And uh, it, it it really tracks... This might be my favorite Doc Ock, I, I, I really think. Like, I, I, I love Doc Ock in terms just as a, a villain, but, uh, like, this is a really good character. The reveal is, like, perfect. 
I'm not using the P word. Oh, it kind of was, though. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's really well t- I, I didn't see it coming. There's no way to see it coming. They didn't put it in any of the trailers. Great uh, vocal performance. Uh, you know, the the, 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 the one line of dialogue business with, with Aunt May. There, there's a lot in there, oh, which is delightful. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, like I mean it, it's it, it's good visual sto- it's good short form storytelling anyway because it's like okay wow there's fills in immediately just a ton of maybes about the beggars like okay all right so this answers us later it's like okay how involved has Aunt May been in this universe in his adventures before very so when later on it's like okay so she's been Alfred this whole time and that's mm. what we can cut right to where is Miles going to get webs from and answer this whole thing and it doesn't have to be a big thing all right cool but you know then also it's on may and doc ock you wonder okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know for non-comic fans regular 616 aunt may the 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 old lady was romantically involved with doc ock nearly married him so you know what you said about short form storytelling watching this movie makes the amazing spider-man in particular embarrassing to watch because oh, they God. go over so much fucking ground we've already covered in those Raimi films. You know, I, I still have kind of a soft spot, mainly because Emma Stone's super charming. Like, having to repeat the Uncle Ben thing. Oh. Well, well, while this movie does the, the polar opposite and goes, okay, Doc Ock, but she's a girl, go. And it's, it's so, like, the, the video game does that as well. They go, it's Doc Ock, but he's not yet Doc Ock, so you can start to, like, see how this whole relationship's going, and, and you've got that in the back of your head the whole time. It, the, both the game and Spider-Verse have this wonderfully unpatronizing, you guys know enough about Spider-Man already, we're not going to, you know, mess you around with this stuff. We, we've sort of gotten tired of origin stories being heavy and weighty and and you know put a lot of you know the the batman v superman you know the the yes and this is very much okay this is what happened and you can kind of interpret it however you want you know that's bad things generally but it's 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 more of usually if a person has that kind of stuff happen it's yeah it's trauma and it's awful and they have consequences but you get on with your life, you deal with it, and you move on, especially in cases when it's been, you know, however many years. Mm-hmm. And it folds it into their, the rest of their life and, again, makes it seem, make them seem more like real people. Mm. And I think that fits with the theme of it could be anybody behind the mask and the the message that you get from Gwen and Miles of you go out there and be your type of superhero rather than somebody else giving you a template of what kind of superhero you're supposed to be. You are not stapled to your origins. You are not your trauma. You get to go forward and do whatever you want with the rest of your business. And I think Mm. that point also leads into one of the questions that came up from what I saw on Twitter, whether or not the the characters act heroically in spite of their tragedies or because of their tragedies. And I think this really plays out well, the, the idea that you go on and you act heroically in spite of your past, in spite of any tragic events that have happened. And it doesn't need to define you, but it also can kind of uh, encourage you to go on absolutely yeah, I, I totally was, agree <laughs> that's that's kind of the the spider-man always gets back up i mean mm-hmm. the tragedies yeah. are what knock him down but being a hero is what gets him back up 
Exactly. They don't need the tragedy in order to be heroic. They're they're already heroic in their own rights. It's just that this also happened to happen. This also happens to occur in their life, and they are moving on in spite of that because they're carrying this this hope and this heroism inside of them. Good catch, Maya. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, speaking of self-important, um, I had a thought the other day that a whole generation of kids who grew up, um, tr- you know, watching the Marvel films, then watched Man of Steel and went, Ugh, and then watched uh, uh, Batman v Superman. Oh, I don't like this. And then they're going to age up, at my my daughter's age, and they're going to eventually sit down and they're going to watch Watchmen and they're going to go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and they will realize several things about Zack Snyder all in one go. And then they will ask, why did they think that was the guy to do Superman? <laughs> so, I was just thinking that while I was watching Aquaman, and we're not going to be able to review Aquaman for a while. So, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to lay that one on the line. But actually, speaking of like super gritty realism, and, or, and not at all realistic because it's stylized to the level of grit. But uh, what are your opinions on Spider-Man Noir? Nick Cage having a fun cameo aside, it felt to me, Matthew A. Seibert asks, like it detracted from the film's message of diversity. Anyone could be behind the mask. As in he's like a a brooding white man uh, prowling the night to enact fist-based justice. What do you think of uh, Spider-Noir? Did he work? I don't think it necessarily detracts from the diversity because it makes the point that anyone could be behind the mask, even a brooding white man. <laughs> We've yeah, got a brooding it, white man. It's going to be Parker. No, it's not the same thing. He's so never saw him outside the mask. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really know what Spider Noir is because he's not. I mean, he he's not only you know like from another time period the other characters mention that he himself is in black and white mm, yeah like I, he's he's he has he's animating at a, a faster frame rate than everyone else he has the smoothest animation happening you know he he's lit differently than ever. like he's he's he on wind yeah he, he and your <laughs> porker and penny all seem to be like they're presented as not even necessarily like natural human beings compared to the yeah. others. Like they're, you know, like interdimensional creatures. His face um, would be flat like Bruce Wayne's in the animated series. Mm. He is the shadow. He is the knight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think you're, I mean, he, he, the three of them are, are, are gag characters yeah. to, to a certain extent when they, when they show up and he's, he's fun. You know, when, when he comes in, he's, he does what he's there for. He's there for the action scenes. He looks good in the beats. I was, at a certain point, I was wondering, okay, like, of all the guys you can bring in, why this guy, why this one, other than, but he he looks good during that big final action scene that you have, okay, this is, there actually isn't one of these guys here to just stand there and have a standing fist fight. He looks good in those sequences when you need someone to be brawling with, I forget who, who he's actually just, like, going hand-to-hand with during that fight, but also, you know, yeah, like, there's, like, the one cute little cutaway moment when he's the one who's carrying Penny and Spider-Ham away. That looks really good. Mm. It's like, okay, yeah, there isn't because the other Peter Parker is indisposed with the other two. So it's like, okay, so you you want that visual? There you go. That's you you have like one of these characters who's sort of like an older adult male there to give you that tableau of like taking the two child characters out of the out of the fight. That's uh, that's an interesting visual. Just like Spider Ham, you know, he's funny. He hits people with a hammer, but it's interesting that they give him like you know one of the big sad lines. Yeah. 
I was just, like, uh, surprised at how he didn't step on the drama uh, because yeah. uh, that kind of character, once you've got him on screen, it's really hard to stop the kids tittering. And when he was crying, they could have done the thing where he puts his, his head up and goes, Wah! like the end of Can You Feel the Love Tonight when Timon and Pumbaa do that. So like, yeah. even one of the yeah. best Disney films of all time steps on their own drama with the wah. But he mm. just puts his head down and, and mourns quietly, and, and the music like he, it, it just about fits that. I'm amazed that they managed to make Spider Ham work as well as they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you float through the air when you smell a delicious pie? The balance was you got three fun characters that we don't really have to get into, and three core characters. Ultimately, the the, the bigger uh, casualty in this one is Gwen. Chris Finnick asks, uh, "Do you think that this?" Haley Steinfeld, by the way, is having a really great year. Uh, this version of Gwen is a part of a larger push by Marvel to move away from the Peter's dead girlfriend version of the character. I noticed neither version of Peter are indicated to have known a Gwen. You can also include a Gwen in the Marvel sequ- was it Secret Warriors. Uh, Web um, Warriors. No, there's a, an animated oh. show slash movie with just oh, like, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. mostly young lady uh, characters like Squirrel Girl and, and Marvel, Marvel Rising. Marvel Rising, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Secret yeah. Warriors. Yeah, yeah. So you got Gwen in that as well. So is the is Gwen now part of Marvel's push to move away from from Gwen being famously and, and Bob? You just did a video on this, I think. Uh, yeah. The, um, yeah. the was it the the beautiful corpse? Uh, exquisite, exquisite corpse. Yeah. 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 Uh, actually, Bob, do you want to? take this one because you pretty much just studied it <laughs> well i mean i i don't know that marvel themselves i mean I'm, i don't work at marvel so i don't know if they ever sat down and said okay we need to move away from from talking about gwen stacy as a dead girlfriend because if they wanted to they could just say guys just stop bringing this up hmm. like, like just make this like one of the spider-man stories that you don't talk about anymore like we're done with it i mean the reason that they keep bringing that they've made spider-man a thing is because they introduced the character as a just a thing to do it's like hey what if we do a, a spy, one of the alternate universe spider women is is Gwen Stacy that will get people talking mm-hmm. because every time we mention Gwen Stacy people freak out because this for a while was one of those things that you weren't supposed to touch and now we touch it all the time she's like a princess diana figure right yeah, yeah. so they they did it and then they brought it back and they did two the two right things to do with it is the story was really good and they had gave her a really good design mm. speaking of the design i love those ballet shoes she wears talk about visual shorthand the dedication and strength and physical poise required to get really good at ballet to the point where she's actually wearing them as part of her costume tells you in half a second an immense amount about spider gwen in a way that differentiates her from every other male spider-man or pig then people liked it and they've stuck with it and i think that the only way that you can make this work as a thing going forward is to not constantly tie it back to a super dark story from the 70s that isn't actually related to this version of the character and you just have to keep running it's it's sort of like the the tony stark uh, mcu version where for the longest time i mean i haven't heard people complain that robert downey jr doesn't drink enough in the marvel movies for about like uh, you know like seven years and for a while like especially around iron man 2 that was the whole thing that we weren't getting uh that iron man 2 wasn't like a version of hancock yeah. because for years the only iron man story anyone cared about was demon in a bottle 
because that was the only like noteworthy thing anyone had bothered to do with Iron Man that wasn't just you know an, an anti-communist screed in the mid '60s. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, I'm sorry, it's true. Like, he, he, Iron Man had, fun, had Iron Man's bad guys were fun to draw. That Iron was, Man, Kame Smasher. Like that, that, that was kind of it for the longest time, and then they said, "Okay, hey, what if he's an alcoholic?" And then that was it for a while. Was that been flying around, uh, you know, like drunk, and had that great cover when they drew stubble on him, and that was it for Iron Man until Robert Downey Jr. said, "Hey, what if he's smug all the time?" Imagine a hero with stubble. Get some shaving on that face, right there. Yeah, right. But yeah. I- <laughs> I think uh, what they're doing with Gwen is what they're doing when they have a, what they're doing with Miles when they have a marketable character is they're zooming and much like they're with Miles here is they've got a dead Spider-Man to be part of his thing here but it's not the ultimate Spider-Man from the comics and it doesn't have all of the carrying the baggage of that specific Spider-Man and now that missing universe that the comics version of Miles is always going to be saddled with because that's part of his continuity. In this version, it's much more centered on his character and what it looks like where they're going with this version of Gwen, which they've also tried to do in the comics just by doing several different storylines with her that are just all about okay, fans, please get over this, get over this, get over this. This is a new character, and now we're just going. They're just kind of going with it and saying, okay, just run on ahead with it. I'm sure if they want to bring it up, they could. Like, it could have been dropped in. It's like, this moves so fast, I and there's so much, like, incidental lines of dialogue and stray scenes that were in a lot of the trailers that aren't here. I would not be surprised at all to find out that there might have been a dropped-in bit of business about how, oh, hey, uh, you know, I knew a Gwen Stacy, but we don't talk about that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of in there. But that's a lot to bring up. It doesn't necessarily matter in this version of the story. So yeah. she's just there. If, if you know it as a fan, it's fun, you know, that she's here. But if not, this is just a, a character, and she's fun. And, you know, hey, there she goes. And, uh, you know, the people who sort... This is how little impact the Amazing Spider-Man movies actually made. <laughs> that, like, this was a... I mean, this, she has the same basic look and name as a character played in two fairly widely released movies by really, really famous actress Emma Stone, and nobody cares. What people like about Spider-Gwen in this movie is that she's fun. Like, no one is talking about, oh, like I've seen no one on social media or anything else asking, like, holy crap, wait, does this mean if the Amazing Spider-Man movies had kept going, this would have been Amazon? Nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. It's a sign, I think, that, uh, well, in a, a little bit of a talk back to certain parts of fandom, to say that these are fictional characters. Yeah. You know, they need to jo- grow and change with the times if they're going to stay popular. It, that it was important for Gwen, you know, that whole thing, Gwen Stacy being, you know, having been killed and effect on Peter Parker. That was an important thing for a while, but we're not that society anymore. That was what the seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was also done because Peter Parker had this kind of perfect, lovely girlfriend that it seemed like he was about to get married to, and everything was just going too great for him, and they didn't know how to write beyond that. So they killed her. That was the 70s, and it was important then. This is the almost 2020s, and it, so we have so much other stuff now. It's evolved. Good. Some people need to um, get over it. Mm. 
I think <laughs> yeah. the, the, How dare you suggest such a thing, Debbie? <laughs> this, is very, this is a very SJW thing for you to say. <laughs> I think, honestly, though, I think you're right, and I think that the little aside that the the Peter in Gwen's universe has has been killed is kind of a nod to that. It's mm. almost a right. This is the only hint you're getting of that particular storyline. And that's all you're getting. Gwen turns up kind of late in the game. We get a little bit of her at the beginning, but we don't really get the real version of her. Then she turns up, and then fairly soon after that, we are introduced to the other three comedy characters. Then Uncle Aaron gets shot, so there's there's huge amounts of drama. Gwen doesn't really get time to breathe dramatically. There is, in the pipeline, a all-female spider-verse-type film possibly in the works, so we can probably mm-hmm. get some more from her there. Frankly, we could do a whole movie on Spider-Gwen. Um, Easily. Yeah, but... Uh, please, 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 people do that. Yeah. But, and get Sean McGuire to write it. Of the character, I wasn't annoyed mm-hmm. that Spider-Noir was there taking the thunder of anyone else. Uh, it, it was just that Gwen could have done with five more minutes. Just a, mm. a little bit more of, like, you know, this is her, because they, they ran through it quickly. There's another female in the movie that seems to have gotten a lot of people's backs up. So uh, the one question Cole Peel asks is a slash bit of confusion I have is Aunt May's role in this universe and the location she's mostly in. Being deliberately vague here because you don't want to spoil stuff on Twitter. Thank you very much, Cole. Uh, It's cool and awesome, but it doesn't make sense the more I think about it. Interested in y'all's thoughts. John Barton asks, I pretty much liked all the characters in this film, but what did you think of Aunt May? Personally, I like the approach of how she understands the whole multiverse deal while also acting as a companion to the other spider people. And Go Soundtracks asks, my biggest problem with the movie was Aunt May. I don't want to give away spoilers, but what do you think about the contrast between her and Spider-Verse compared to her more traditional roles, which would be... Uh, Marissa Tomei's sexy Aunt May that everyone keeps talking about how hot she is. Uh, Sally Fields, I'm a nurse, Peter. I've got to work as a nurse to afford to pay for your bedroom. And the like classic Silver Age Aunt May played by actress... Rosemary Harris. Thank you, Rosemary Harris in the Sam Raimi. And then, of course, there's the spectacular Spider-Man version. And then there's the ultimate Spider-Man version. And um, any other Aunt Mays that I'm missing? There's been a lot of Aunt Mays. I think yeah. I'm already kind of answering the question here. But uh... Uh, Aunt May from Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, who's totally oblivious and only ever pays attention to her dog. Oh, Miss Lion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry you have a Miss Lion movie on the way. Oh, oh man, Miss Lion should have been in this. <laughs> okay, yes. so, right, so question is, um, did May fit for you? Yes. Okay. Sorry. So I'll elaborate on why May fit for you. <laughs> Me too. Having her end up being quite different to the more traditional Aunt May, I suppose. She's oh, Peter, I'm head. so worried about... She's... Oh, how could I forget Aunt May in the PS4 game? Yes, that too. Feast see, Aunt May. Now, that's the other thing as well. That's We've the had Aunt a fantastic May Aunt May this year already. That I think parallels with this Aunt May the best, which reinforces my theory about this Peter being Peter from the game. Okay. The Plus, he has the white, cost, the white spider suit down yeah. on the far left, but that's just Indeed. an aesthetic thing. So definitely not the actual Peter from Spider-Man The Big Apple. Or the soundtrack's called Spider-Man The City That Never Sleeps. I also love that name, because both titles make New York a character. So yeah, not the PS4 Peter or the PS4 Aunt May, but there are definite similarities. But the the yeah. kind of old Aunt May who needs to be protected and doesn't know what's going on, she is very much of the Raimi-verse for me. 
And I, I, who herself was very much imported from the Silver Age. Yeah, exactly. Now, if that's your classic view of Aunt May and you want her to stay that way, that's fine. But I loved the fact that she was involved, that she knew what was going on, and she actually felt like a combination of Sally Field and Marissa Tomei for okay. me, and and like I say, the the Aunt May from the PS4 game as well. So much of our mythology of Aunt May is based around the fact that Steve Ditko drew her like an eighty-year-old woman raising a sixteen-year-old boy, mm-hmm. which never made any. Sense. I bought you some wheat cakes, Peter. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was she was drawn way too old, but we never got a sense of her kind of actual age, except that she was old, at least Peter saw her as old, and because he was our viewpoint character and a teenager, she could have been 157, and, you know, it's all the same. 40, 157, the whole th- same thing. But, but she's always so got to be someone got... effectively defenseless and someone good-hearted that Peter worries about, who worries about Peter, but might have mixed feelings about Spider-Man. And so this... The fact yeah. that she's Alfred and has actually been helping Peter for a long, long time, that is a big turnabout. So I can see turnabout. why people are it sort is, of like, well, it, it is also consistent with this very heroic and idealised Peter that we get presented with early on in the film. Because the fact that she has been able to provide him with both practical and emotional support through what he's doing gives him the potential to develop earlier the way he has. I, I'm guessing Peter B. Parker has a more classic Aunt May She's and dead. that's why... He said buried Aunt May. Well, yeah, eventually, but yeah. what I'm saying is that in his growing up as Spider-Man, his right. Aunt May was more like the, the Aunt May that people think of her as being. Yeah, she bought me a few too many wheat cakes, if you, that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, what's that <laughs> left him with? Just a sense that he is going to give up. Well, I yeah. think what you're saying here is very important to how Aunt May is different is that it's it's almost a direct relation to Peter in Miles' universe making a few different and better choices mm-hmm. because so much of what Peter's got going on in terms of like how he relates to Aunt May is like, okay, I have to protect her by doing this. I have to keep this from her. Peter, like Chris Piderman, Peter, he's got it a lot easier in a lot of ways because he has got like this mature you know not quite symbiotic but very supportive and open relationship with Aunt May she knows what's going on and she can help him he's in a stable relationship with Mary Jane he has a cash inflow from side gigs doing like merch and licensing so he can afford to have this crazy Batman-esque spider lair that's the payoff of course (laughs) yeah and so like of course he's you know it's very different because they're they're of course very you know basic surface level okay yes it's peter parker but this is a peter parker who's like made better choices and has it a little bit easier i would theorize that if you really wanted to get into the weeds of what makes a spider-man like him having it slightly easier might play into why he gets cut down in his prime whereas peter b parker is old and broken but still alive um, but, you know, that's like a, a different conversation. But I honestly think this this Aunt May is is perfect for the universe we see and additionally provides maybe the biggest subtle gut punch in the entire movie where she, who has just buried her Peter, meets Peter, who has had to bury his Aunt May, and they don't have time for anything more than a, you look tired, I am tired. Mm-hmm. And that brief exchange that is so May and Peter, regardless of how Alfred she is or isn't. It's still very much May. Yeah. I, mean, I think er- just in general, she's a much more active character. And 
for you know for my money i think that is a much more interesting character i think it's a much more compelling character than an aunt may who is just held up as a piece of collateral against peter all the time when they did the uh the ultimate spider-man which which this sort of starts out as a version of that and then di- and then diverges when they did the ultimate spider-man comics originally th- that version of aunt may it's like classic aunt may but also like a really active senior version you know, I, ne- I never really liked because it, it seemed like they were just kind of like made her more like dynamic just to do it. And there wasn't a point to it. And like uh, the supporting cast in these stories, they, they are like they are for storytelling reasons. Like Aunt May in the original Dicko stuff, she's a ridiculous character. There's no purpose for her to be this old. She's literally on the cusp of death for like 20 years. <laughs> but, but she's that way because it drives the plot and it fits into his character. It's part of what makes Peter, you know, an, an out-of-touch dork is that he's been raised by elderly people so he doesn't even have... Uh, like his version of like you know rebelling against authority even is like 30 years behind the curve because he's been effectively raised by grandparents it's part of the character but the version here where part of it is just continually undercutting people's expectations by undercutting Peter B. Parker's expectations of what this is going to be you know where you it's it's all about when they get to the moment of we're expecting a big kind of emotional oh this is going to be awkward sort of thing and instead immediately Aunt May who in every other version of Spider-Man even when you know she whether she's young old uh, Sally Field Mercy Tomei whatever is always a character that is you know confused and has to have things explained or whatnot immediately goes oh you're from another dimension and then oh no okay i i've been keeping track of the weapon stuff here and by the way there's already been three people here i've been through this like three times this is can we please hurry up the plot and get to act three this movie's been on for like 90 minutes you know it's a it's a great bit of business there the the idea that this is a, a quick shortcut to driving the point home once and for all that like no this the the spider-man in miles universe is the one that made the better life decisions which at some point included wait a minute what if i just tell her and this has also worked out better for her Mm -hmm. is 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 fascinating and it gives the audience uh um like this version of aunt may is a really interesting character and unlike other versions there are where if they do another one of these, if it was the traditional Aunt May, I would not care if she came back in the next one or not, because you know what, this is Miles' story, he's got his own stuff going on. This is a character that it would be much more interesting to come back in on. You know, like, she seems to clearly have an actual life of her own that is, while adjacent to separate from the Spider-Man stuff. You know, even, like, even when they come back and, like, he goes back to, to, to get, like, the suit and whatnot, like, not only is she going to help him, but she's way ahead of him. She she knew he was going to come back. She's already built him some stuff to help with. You know, like, she, she not only knew he was going to come back, she's smug about it. <laughs> like, this has been up for a while. Like, I, I know, I know. This is, like, there's a lot going on with her, and I, I would like to see this. And it's, like, pre- I remember for a while, so like, one of the projects Sony was threatening to make if they didn't get to make the movies they were going to just make an aunt may movie for, for lack of anything else to make okay oh, and yeah. oh yeah i don't know to be a spy film yeah they were going to do like i mean the, amy pascal has been trying to green light every version of uh, a female spider-man movie 
for years because she wants to make women-led action movies and Sony didn't own anything that would work. So they, she just kept trying to do it with Spider-Man stuff and now she's finally got a backdoor into it. Good, you know, good for her. Didn't they cancel Black and Silver, the uh, Sable and uh, Black Cat movie? It, no, yeah, I don't seem to know what was going on with that. It didn't seem like that was like going very well. Right. I, uh, I, I mean, who, who, who knows anymore? Like that was canceled. Like that, that seemed to be either canceled or split back into two things and then put on the back burner. But that happened right around the same time that Venom was getting dumped in October to right. make whatever it could make on Halloween. And then uh, Venom turned out to be, you know, however bad it was, people really wanted to see Venom. So it's beloved. Yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows? You know, I. I mean, I guess, are they still going to do Morbius? Is that still happening? This seems to be I was thinking about this the other day. If you don't have Spider-Man in it, just a vampire, played by Jared Leto. Who could Not even possibly want to see that? Yeah, and also, like, do they need to do this anymore? It, like, it seems like they've now got Venom, which is a $100 million movie, and, like, Venom apparently doesn't even need to be good to make money. It just needs to have Venom. Oh, Venom! <laughs> Yeah, so just, yeah, yeah, that's been that's been the case for years, though, Bob. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, I know, but like, like, <laughs> I mean, now they've got it, and they can just wait around for Marvel to say, okay, fine, find a way to shove him into the Tom Holland movies, and, because you know we would also like some of that hundred mil. It, it clearly not being R rated didn't hurt it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, why make any more of these spinoffs? Why not just? have the animated Spider-Man things be their Lego movie and just greenlight a dozen of these. Before we move on from Ant-Man, I just want to mention the fact that what genius casting was having Lily Tomlin mm. do her voice. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. was perfectly just... Not even the P word. A bit world-weary but and acerbic, but also very caring and loving. And I don't think there's any actress that I can think of who is better suited to that exact combination. <laughs> yeah. My daughter saw uh, the Steve Martin movie All of Me uh, the other day, and I said, uh, by the way, Aunt May, it took you long enough, Edwina Cutwater. And she went, ah! Because my daughter <laughs> loved that version of Aunt May. So there's your answer. Kids think this Aunt May is cool. Mm, yeah. Whereas yeah, oh, right. Peter Wheatcakes again isn't cool. <laughs> the the res resentment of like the clingy relative thing, I feel like, is something that like my generation and maybe one after is. I feel like generation after mine is less resentful of that than my generation was. Yeah. Well, so, they have cool no. grandparents. Yeah, they grew yeah, up with true. some kind of technology. They, you can almost guarantee that kids that age, their grandparents, at least 50% of them will have been hippies at some point. Yeah, yeah. Got a devil on my left and an angel on my right. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just hanging in the fight. Swinging off the web of life, lighting through the breeze. My uncle always told me that it never would be easy. Now I'm looking to the sky, hoping that he rests in peace. Balance in the streets, I just want to come to peace. All these problems, I'm just fighting with myself and enemies. Looking for my peace while I'm looking for my peace. I just want to see him fly away. I just want to see a better day. I just want to soar and never drown. I'm looking for my happiness now. Okay, another big character, literally the biggest character, in the, unless you count Green Goblin, by the way. Um, like, he's barely in it. So, like, one of the questions was, what do you guys think of the reimaginings of the various villains who show up 
in a lot of cases, Chris Finnick, this is the person who asked, um, they're kind of just in it for a bit. They're lackeys, like mm-hmm. Tombstone. Uh, I, ga- I gather that most people don't like this giant hulking version of, of uh, Green Goblin. Eh, it's I'm, fine. I've, I've, been reading, I've been reading yeah, about the Goblin Nation now for years, mm. so a giant Green Goblin, whatever. Okay. I've, never, I've never been nuts about him, but like he works here. Like Visually, he looks great here, and he's not a big deal in the movie, so like whatever. Yeah. It's, it, sure. he's, he's not like the most important bad guy in the Ultimate Universe, and he's not the most important bad guy here. So hmm. it's fine. It's a, a good signal to, to fans in the audience that, okay, this is closer to the Ultimate Universe. There you go. And to non-fans, it's a signal of, okay, this is not the Green Goblin that you're used to. This is a, a different thing. Get used to the fact that it's different. It looks really cool in that scene with the with the bombs and whatnot. It's dynamic. Yeah. It, 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 it's fine. Couple of them I liked. Mexican Scorpion was a nice addition. Tombstone was just a scrapper and had one iota the amount of presence he had, played by Kevin Michael Richardson and briefly Keith David in Spectacular Spider-Man. Tombstone in Spectacular had this like real like he was basically the stand-in for Kingpin, and there was a lot of weird right. a weird amount of focus on gangsters in this kid's cartoon. <laughs> like yeah. as much as Batman the Animated Series. That's what Spider-Man deals with best, the mob. But yeah, most of these yeah. guys were basically just Kingpin's lackeys. Doc Ock was different, but a lot of what you got about Doc Ock was just kind of what do we know about Doc Ock already? And then you put what we're seeing here spin on it to infer what we need to know about Liv. Yeah. Uh, but Kingpin himself, how does Liv Schreiber's Kingpin measure up for you with the other three major representations, namely Vincent D'Onofrio in the Netflix Daredevil, Michael Clark Duncan in the movie Daredevil, and Roscoe Lee Brown in the 1994 Spider-Man animated series. I have waited for this for some time. What do you have in mind? A pie-eating contest? Approximately 2% of my body mass is fat. Allow me to show you what 350 pounds of muscle is capable of. I've already said on our Daredevil show how Michael Clark Duncan's Kingpin is a villain I really would have liked to see persist throughout some kind of cinematic universe. You got heart, kid. Where are you from? Queens. Brooklyn. Sit in the guard's home. <laughs> Sir. I was raised in the Bronx, Wesley. This is something you wouldn't understand. And I've already said on our other Daredevil show how Kingpin in season one felt like a giant angry baby who, you know, smashed a dude's head in a car door over and over again. I love Fisk's design. I love that he's just this big hulking shape that kind of moves through the whole film. I thought that was a really strong way to present him just visually. I thought he worked quite well. Uh, I don't really have Quite a whole lot well. else to say about Fisk. I just think he worked well. I think adding the, the bit about his family gave him just enough motivation to move the story forward and to give him that impetus to do the things that he's trying to do without smacking you over the head too hard with it. I think yeah. it really helps to have a bad guy whose impetus is my dead family in a mm-hmm. hero who's also impetus for you know doing the exact opposite is also my dead family because it really <laughs> underlines the the differences in choice and also the way that they convey it with kingpin is both visually and artistically beautiful and 
it it kind of gives that differentiation in characters. Kingpin losing something, it feels proprietary to him, and he's selfish about it. Um, whereas Miles, of course, is, acts very differently. Um, but it also doesn't crowd things out. It it, does, it gives you just enough garnish on the character to be like, okay, I know exactly where he's coming from. Um, it gives you that really great hot button of him, like you know, stopping the Prowler from killing Spider-Man until until Peter presses that button, and then he just destroys him so you know exactly you know what's going to put him over the edge so it's it's incredibly functional and i i also kind of like that it doesn't glorify his actions too much he's still like okay you know why he's a bad guy but no he's still a big old dickhead yeah you still understand why what he's doing is incredibly dangerous and incredibly wrong but it is a really nice parallel to what's going on with the Peters, the various Peters, and also with Miles and his uncle. The element of the My Dead family that I really liked was actually something that Lyra picked up on, and that's the futility of it. The fact that he's opening this portal to try and bring someone else's family in from another dimension. Lyra said it doesn't matter how many families he brings, they're not his. He's still lost his family. To the people who might bitch and moan about the idea of being presented with another Spider-Man. It doesn't matter how many Spider-Mans we present you with, it doesn't take away the Spider-Man you had before. It doesn't take away the Aunt May that you had before. This is, I think, one of the the perfect uses of of the Kingpin as a a villain, because you have all these other colourful villains, and what the disadvantage sometimes is to to the colourful villains is that they tend to be big, flashy guys and they have big, flashy pans and big, flashy personalities. And the advantage of a bad guy like this is as big and sci-fi and melodramatic as what he's trying to do is you can't help when it's just a really big guy in a black suit who punches hard and has a gun that whenever it tracks back to him story-wise or even in a scene, it's an immediate visual narrative way of yanking the story back to saying, okay, playtime is over, this is serious now. You know, you can see it in the the big fight scene at Aunt May's house, where it's like, okay, this is awesome, we're having our big brawl with all of the different spiders versus all these different bad guys, look at everyone's different powers, how cool is this? We're having this big moment with uh, Miles and his uncle, and it's there, and then, you know, immediately, right back to the kingpin, he's a character that's capable of just, okay, superhero business is over, I'm just going to take out a gun and shoot someone. And immediately, it's like, okay, playtime's over, this is actually serious business, we're right back here. You know, Spider-Man is at the beginning, the the prime universe Spider-Man, I guess, is, you know, doing his quip thing and trying to have the dramatic moment. And, you know, Kingpin just smashes him, and that's it. He's like, no, this is the seri- This is the things are serious business character, and it works. And having him be, like, the last guy that fights Miles, you know, it's your visual being, you know, a, a what is Miles supposed to be, about 15 years old? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like a you know, 15-year-old black kid versus a gigantic, wealthy, uh, you know, blob of a, of a white New York businessman in there. Like, that's not subtle. <laughs> no. That's, that's like, it, it's sort of obvious there that these two make a very nice pe- good guy, bad guy pair for that. And, you know, the whole monologue of just, like, this overwhelming force of a, of a guy and uh, the, the the fun visual idea of just a, a big fat guy who's actually a big strong guy. It, it brings in a little bit of dose of reality because this is the kind of bad guy that someone like Miles actually fights in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it from a narrative perspective, it works out really well in the sense that 
Miles's father would recognize the Kingpin as a bad guy. So yeah. it helps make that transition from Spider-Man's vigilante and we can't trust him to, well, I guess you're okay because you fought this mob boss who I would have been imminently familiar with being a police officer. Mm. But unable to do much about. Yeah, Spider-Man could do the thing that I can't do as a cop. In comparison to the others, I I struggle a lot because I liked this character a lot, but I I don't really like Wilson Fisk from from the show all that much personally, but... Michael Clark Duncan was amazing. You know, one of the few actually amazing things about the about the movie, the Ben Affleck. Get that cat out of here. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry. laughs> so I'm just thinking about Steve Martin movies. That was the man with two yeah. brains. <laughs> is is the fact that that was one thing that was was awesome about the Ben Affleck movie was Michael Clark Duncan did an amazing job. Yeah. For me, I can't get over the 90s cartoon version of him, and that's the voice that I always read it in when I'm reading, you know, comics and and the Kingpin shows up. I don't know why, and because we have seen much Michael Clark Duncan being a great example, we have seen better portrayals of the Kingpin, and including this one. But as much as I like Lee Shriver's performance. In my head, I was having trouble getting over that hump of, no, he's a vaguely British guy for some <laughs> reason. It, it, it's uh, the American shorthand for evil, vaguely British. <laughs> I think uh, we've uh, actually seen this parallel fairly recently uh, between villains. It was actually Peter and Octavius in the Spider-Man PS4 game. We can't really go into that because a lot of people won't have played it, but Octavius is the, you know, the, the end philosophical opposition point for Peter and there is a lot more time to elaborate on the relationship between Peter and Ock than there is between Miles and Kingpin who don't even know each other. There, there is no butting of philosophies wherein Miles can see what needs to be done for everyone and Wilson is desperate to just claw the thing that he wants for him back. I'm mystified about the fact that uh, Liv, uh, Doc Ock, it, you know, witnesses Peter B. Parker's discombobulation, his glitching, and works out that he's going to basically become antimatter in a few hours. And she doesn't tell Wilson Fisk that someone bought from another dimension cannot last here. She goes, no, no, keep going. Go ahead. It's great for my experiments. That's crazy. That's she uh-huh. is off the chain. I don't think you can call it crazy, but it is... It's evil. It It is that straddle between evil and sociopathic it's it's the the end justifies the means the the pure exploration element means it doesn't matter who suffers as a result which also means it's as octavius as it gets Mm. which also means that liv uh had a backup plan which is the moment that this family starts to disappear and wilson gets crazy it's try to pacify him with no there there we'll find another we'll make it work this time and if he doesn't go with that kill him because and and take over um, Alchemax. That's clearly the only way she's going if she's thinking ahead. And I, I as far as I know about Doc Ock from reading the Superior Spider-Man, which is excellent, although it gets less excellent about halfway through when they take Peter out of the equation. But Doc Ock plans ahead. Yeah, it, it's it's a, a well observed like Doctor Octopus sort of reaction where his his role in a lot of the spider-man stories where he's with other villains is always okay we need a scientist this is the guy who can do this because the green goblin is 
always either dead or completely untrustworthy. And, like, this is the guy who will do it, and it's always a matter of, I really could give a shit less about your plans. I just want to do science stuff. Give me the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even, it's, it's like, even, even in Spider-Man 2, where he's a completely different character than he is in the comics, it's still very much on those plans of, I'm doing crimes because I want to do science, and, and damn the consequences. <laughs> um, and one, one way in which it does kind of tie into Spider-Man 2's Doc Ock is it could be that Liv is just assuming that she can make it work better because the reason that the that that the other spider people come in is because like Goblin mashes Chris Spider-Man's head into the thingy and he sort of like connects to different spider people and pulls them in by accident so you know it could just and of course this is me just reading into possible you know um, motivations for Liv's actions you know maybe she's just like well that was an accident they weren't supposed to come here it was when the portal was collapsing but when I do it it'll be fine next time it'll be perfect if Spider-Man doesn't mess it up then it won't be broken right they're obviously leaving some stuff open for sequels because we still don't exactly know how the mechanics of this work and one now that they've pulled the trigger on the multiverse thing in this first movie they're not gonna unpull it Miles is a fabulous character, as realised here. So many of us have been waiting for him to appear on the big screen, and he not only did not disappoint me, he exceeded expectations. Since we're in the Age of Heroes now, it is impossible for a brand new Spider-Man not to be mentored by some other hero. But the relationships with his father, his mother, his uncle, all feed into the version of Miles that we see on screen. He is a repository of learned experience and reaction. And the more this is done in storytelling, the less of a straightforward avatar for the reader the character becomes. They have their own experiences, misgivings and fears. I relish the deadbeat uncle-slash-cocky-nephew relationship with Peter B. Parker. They come off more like brothers in the long run, which feels healthy, and they both learn valuable lessons from each other, exemplified in the overcoming of their fears. An odd little bit that I don't know whether anyone loved nearly as much as me was their little thwip, thwip, thwip session in the forest. Quite apart from the fact that this was doing multiple new things with Spider-Man, it was when the two got in sync with one another, and the two worlds and two generations started working well together. One enjoying teaching, the other enjoying learning. Which was, of course, the best time narratively to throw Gwen into the mix, even if she was a little shortchanged on personal, impactful story. The visual centerpiece of the movie for me, and I'm guessing a hell of a lot of people, is the What's Up Danger sequence, where Miles, having overcome his fear, takes a far higher leap than the earlier ones that scared him so much. And now that he has a costume passed down to him from one Spider-Man, customized with paint by him, using one of Miles' most overlooked skills, his artistic flair and wearing bespoke web shooters made for him by the eternal maternal figure Aunt May. The tumble upwards into the inverted skyline of Manhattan is not just stunning, it is a truly memorable and potentially iconic image in cinema, up there for me at least, with the Star Destroyer chasing Princess Leia's ship, Indiana Jones kneeling down with the golden idol between us and him, and King Kong beating his chest atop the Empire State Building. This is the moment a hero uses what others have given him to make himself. And there's the descent 
the gathering speed. We've seen Spidey swing on a web a million times, but this one feels monumental. Can't stop me now. Okay, let's close this thing out with the quickfire round. That's all the remaining questions fired at our guests. One person, one answer, then we move on. Related to the Kingpin, Freddie Alexander asks, what do you think about the film's portrayal of grief and loss? In particular, is there a difference in how the spiders recover from grief? This could also apply to May and Fisk. I think there is a consistency about how the spiders recover from grief, actually, which is that they plough it into action, that they... They take a sense of, I couldn't save this person, and they put their energy into saving everyone else. Jesse Ferguson asks, apart from the tagline about responsibility, one of Spider-Man's central tenets has always been, anyone can be behind the mask. How well do you feel Into the Spider-Verse addresses slash defends this thesis? I mean, it is, it is kind of the whole movie. The mo- that, that's the point of the movie. The movie works so well. Andy Rodriguez asks, how is Miles becoming Spider-Man representative of both the ideals and beliefs set up by his dad and Uncle Aaron? How is Spider-Man's relationship with the police different in this film compared to other Spider-Man media in recent years, especially TBA? Oh, The Big Apple, that's the video game. And Amazing Spider-Man. I think this would have been a much, much different movie if his dad wasn't a cop, if Miles' dad wasn't a cop. Mm. When I saw this question, I thought maybe this was even done on purpose to avoid having a difficult discussion about how the police would actually react to a black superhero, a black Spider-Man. It's probably something that the filmmakers thought they didn't, they either couldn't handle in a movie like this or didn't want to take on such a big topic in something that essentially is a children's movie and an animated one at that. But I thought it was really great how they set up that contrast between his dad being super authoritarian, his other somewhat father figure being Uncle Aaron being kind of loose and taking him out to essentially break the law by doing the graffiti and also very specifically saying, we're going to make this yours by putting the outline of your silhouette on it. Like, that's really going to be your mark. This belongs to you. This is who you are. And it completely flies in the face of the authority that your dad is putting out there. So I thought that was a nice little bit of family contrast. But again, he would have had a much, much more different relationship with authority and the police if uh, if his dad had not been a cop, I think. You say that they didn't uh, uh, touch on um, the, the race relations side of things between cops and uh, um, the, the African-American community because it's a kid's film. They didn't even do that in Luke Cage, which is most definitely for adults and absolutely 
totally should have been a sideline. The film that actually touches on it, The Hate You Give, this year, that's precisely what they should have done with Luke Cage. He is stuck in the middle between gangs and police. He's trying to do the right thing, and you've got these two oppressive forces on either side. No one wants to tell that story because it's incredibly controversial right now. It would take a lot of guts to do that especially mm-hmm. in a superhero context, and I hope that someone does, especially Marvel. Uh, okay, Cubano Reeves asks, Miles' final fight versus, spoiler, uh, Kingpin? Unless he actually fought spoiler. Seems unnecessary yeah. from both the plot and character <laughs> perspective. Seems unnecessary from both the plot and character perspective. Does it serve a useful function in the movie that I missed, or should it have been edited out? So him fighting the kingpin. I'm going to hard disagree with that, because uh, not just because of the cultural connotations we talk about, about a young Latino man fighting a you know old rich white guy, but I think it's also a great example of the final punctuation mark to Miles becoming Spider-Man being a fusion of his backgrounds because the shoulder touch might be one of the greatest payoffs in modern superhero cinema, not just because it's already been kind of like it's a Chekhov's gun that was already fired as a joke an hour previously in the movie. But when they use it as a, okay, this is the final he has control of his powers. Not only does he have full control of his powers in a way that the other Spider-Man that fought Kingpin, you know, couldn't hope to have this ability. And that's why it works here, but it's also paying homage to his uncle who was killed by the Kingpin. It's sort of the ultimate Phil Lord, Chris Miller thing of like, I never would have expected you to do that, but Working backwards, I see that this was the only way that this particular confrontation could have ended because then at the very end, he then uses Kingpin to stop his own machine. Hmm. So, yeah, like I said, um, I I think that part is great. And I think that the shoulder touch in particular is a, a work of true genius. Agree. Agree. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, music. Matthew A. Seibert asks, how does this film score by Daniel Pemberton, who I'd never heard of before and rocked the joint? How does it compare yeah. against... I think I've already answered the question. How does it compare against A, Spider-Man 2002 and B, Black Panther? I got this one because I've been thinking about this one for a while. Pemberton is one of those composers that he's very much the anti-John Williams or Hans Zimmer in the sense that Williams and Zimmer create these amazing scores that just kind of stomp all over everything and really bring you into it. Whereas Pemberton, who kind of rides the line between television and film, has these scores that are so much in the background, so camouflaged in, but fit so well into any particular scene. So... It's one of those, I didn't necessarily notice it, but I found myself grooving to it the entire time. And it wasn't until I listened back on the soundtrack, like, oh yeah, I remember that happening. I remember that happening. But as I was watching it, it was so much a part of things that it all fell into place together. As far as comparing it to the other two, yeah, 2002 was very kind of in your face. And then Black Panther, that took me a while to actually get into but once I did, it was more that the sound, the score on Black Panther sort of informs the movie, whereas uh, Pemberton's score on this upholds the movie. I'll add two notes. Danny Elfman's score now feels like a classic from a bygone age, much like his Batman score and John Williams' Superman.
Ludwig Göransson's score on Black Panther is transportive. It takes you to Africa, which is very powerful. Pemberton's score, if you listen to it all the way through, it changes pace quite a lot and it, it sort of jams in sudden staccato moments and they play for just short amounts of time. It's most evocative of a skateboarder doing parkour throughout a city, tackling each crazy little obstacle as they come, which is kind of perfect for Spider-Man. I love the record track stuff that he does with the the way he recorded the, the, the orchestra and then put it onto a, a basically a digital turntable and scratches the orchestra during the score it's yeah if he, there's a lot of really interesting stuff to find out about this if you want to dig into Pemberton's process yeah and if you listen to the sound like the same way I was saying that a lot of the visuals borrow from the original comic creators you can li- you can literally hear that he tried to look at those visuals and say what does this what does this particular color or shape sound like? It's, it is a very tangible score. Highlight for me was uh, with the revelation of the Prowler. There's there's this fantastic kind of... Uh, there's that grinding sound that, uh, that sounds like a, a, an air raid horn from... It's a distorted elephant cry, like muffled. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it kind of goes that... It just really hammers that point home. That like you can't... like it, it makes it more dramatic than it might even have been. Yeah. That was my favorite bit of music was any time that character showed up, the music was absolutely oh, yeah. perfect. And this is the same composer who did uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E., which was another one that the soundtrack... I can't imagine another composer doing a Guy Ritchie period piece in the 60s other than Daniel Pemberton. <laughs> I could. X-Men First Class, Henry Jackman. Um, he's also apparently uh, doing the soundtrack for a television film released next year called Brexit. Timely. Uh, <laughs> See how that happens. We're living in a dystopia, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what Nigel Farage sounds like. Nigel Farage will sound like a distorted, poisoned toad. You know those frogs in the Amazon that can kill a thousand people with the amount of poison they've got on their bodies? Well, imagine having a pint with one of them. Randy Gandalf asked what we thought of the album of music from and inspired by Into the Spider-Verse. As far as I'm concerned, like, it's a great album for the kids to listen to, and it has Sunflower, What's Up Danger, and Elevate on it, which is the important thing. And St. Elmo's Fire. It doesn't have that. Yeah. It doesn't have St. Elmo's... These ones on the end, I had to add myself. You had to add them. Is that because that would confuse the kids, too? It sticks out like a sore Peter B. Parker thumb. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We barely talked about Jake Johnson's uh, uh, Peter B. Parker. He was one of my favourite characters this year. Feels like it was more important this time around to focus on Miles' adventure rather than Peter's. Because we barely mentioned Miles in the PS4 game, and this is redressing that balance. Mm. I love uh-huh. his, uh, his his portrayal. as He's one of those characters where as soon as he turns up, you're like, oh, everything you say is going to be funny apart from the stuff that's heartbreaking. And he is, just the whole way through. Like, they, <laughs> yeah. they convey that like in really short form, and uh, there isn't time to talk about everything brilliant in this film but but, but he was he was definitely one of them if you've listened to our quick review of all three Grinch movies, you'll have heard us rant about Illumination and their command of the box office by delivering people super non-challenging pablum. But we saw The Secret Life of Pets, 
which takes place in a pristine New York City. Everything that uh, Illumination ever put out, it's candy colored and it's bright and it's shiny and it's very visually appealing and it, it's spotless. And I thought, how the hell can you do New York City that's just, that has side streets stained with 100-year-old piss? And I remember looking out for, for moments of dirt on the walls and I was like, there's some when they were in one particularly disreputable alley. And that's how Illumination work. They, they offer people a completely sanitized world. People, you know, bitch and moan about how Disney is sanitized. Disney and Pixar are unafraid to go dark on you. They are unafraid to take you to a place that's sad and melancholy. They will dally, however fleetingly, with despair. That's their hallmark. There's a bit in The Secret Life of Pets where the newly adopted old dog that's kind of been Buzz Lightyearing this Louis C.K. dog, during their travels across town, finds himself outside the home of his old master. And he was an old man before, and it's like, right, this old guy is dead, so now you can have a moment of actual... Like, you know, I've been really mean to you the whole time because I'm terrified that if I go home to my master, he's gone. And, like, we're actually going to get caught here. Like, emotionally speaking... Illumination are going to get to me again after the only other time they managed to do that with Sing. And that didn't happen at all. They just get in another fight and move on, and they abandon that whole sideline. Illumination have built their empire on not being Disney, on not being Pixar. There is a subconscious choice going on with the adults in the audience. I don't want to have to deal with my kid being melancholy. I don't want them to be sad in the cinema. I don't want to have to handle that. Can you give me a film that's bright and colourful and bouncy like a Pixar, but that's not going to mess with their emotions? You know, the baby mind scene in Dumbo makes me uncomfortable. It's a pact between a studio that just wants money and families that just want light entertainment. Secret Life of Pets made $875 million. That is going to be more than this. Because every kid loves dogs and cats, and only some kids like Spider-Man. Plus, Sony here are up against two stigmas at once. One is teens and adults who won't go and see animated movies at all, because they're for children. And this has been going for a long time. It's the reason that the 1986 Transformers movie made no money, while the Michael Bay films made all the money. And the other stigma is families that want to go and see animated family fun won't go and see violent boys' adventures. If it seems like there's going to be a lot of fighting in there, they stay away. That's why A Christmas Carol and the Polar Express made much more money than Beowulf. That's why Hercules made much less money than almost all the other 90s Disney renaissance. There's a constant push-pull on both sides when you're making animated movies. If you make it too girlish and princessy, the boys won't want to come at all. If you make it too boyish and violent, the mums won't want to come at all. This is why, when you sell Frozen, you go for comedy animals. So the trailer was a reindeer grappling with a snowman for a carrot. Comedy animals sell. And Spider-Verse only has one comedy animal, and he's not prevalent enough in the marketing. A lot of this is supposition on my part. It's kind of difficult to talk about market trends without sounding like a crazy tinfoil-hatted conspiracy theorist. And yet, Kevin Hart in The Secret Life of Pets plays a truly evil rabbit who's like a gang leader, who about five times each scene he's in threatens to murder our heroes, just kill them. Apparently that's acceptable, darkness. 
long as nobody gets too sad. Because it's absurd. How could a cute, fluffy white bunny kill someone? Go on, boss. Chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit suit coming right up. Look. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I warned you. I've done it again. I warned you, but did you listen to me? Oh, no, you knew it all, didn't you? Oh, it's just a harmless little bunny, isn't it? Well, it's always the same. I always oh, tell them, up. do they listen to me? Tight. Oh, no. Shut oh. up! So I lost my train of thought. I was talking about Illuminations pristine, piss-free version of New York in The Secret Life of Pets. This version of New York had this grimy, textured, lived-in, but at the same time still bright and vibrant aesthetic to it. And the fact that the camera flowed through it, like it's almost like Alfonso Cuaron at times, like they hold the takes, they keep it moving along, rather than defaulting to the cookie-cutter angles and setups of the average animated blockbuster. The artistic leaps in this are gonna be why it doesn't do a billion dollars. I'm thankful that because of the advertising behind it, it's not going to be an Iron Giant, but it feels like the Iron Giant in terms of everyone who's seen it loves it, but not enough people will ever see this film. Whipping through the streets of New York every night Wrapping bad guys up in my web so tight Crawling up the walls, making villains fight what fun to make the holidays free from crime tonight Oh, spider bells, goblin smells, vulture laid an egg Spider buggy blew a tire and venom got away yeah. Uh, random questions. Can anyone tell us briefly about the 648-page Spider-Verse storyline that ran in 2014? And I mean... The operative word being briefly? Really You're gonna briefly. guess the answer's no. Because I started reading it the other night yeah. and I was like, fuck. Like, I also started reading uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, the uh, Miles Morales introduction, and yeah. I was like, wow, this was like a prototype that Lord and Miller went, let's just do it, but just way better. And then the Spider-Verse, <laughs> let's just do that, but just so much better, more on point, just yeah. get straight down to business. Yeah, this has, this has almost nothing to do with the Spider-Verse comic. Basically, psychic vampires that eat spider people okay. are going from reality to reality, and our Peter Parker has to get together an army of spider people from across the multiverse to fight them. It doesn't even start with our Peter Parker. It starts with freaking Octo Otto Octavius Peter Parker. Yeah, that's because uh, there was a break in Superior Spider-Man where he disappeared Slide. and then came back a couple of seconds later and we never learned what happened and oh, okay. it's filled that in. Okay, cool. Dan Slott wrote uh, Spider-Man for a decade and he was able to set stuff up like this and pay it off years later. Because he's a damn genius. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so It was fun, but it's, it's, it's literally just, hey, here's one fan thing after another. Right. Yeah. It was cool to see the TV um, Spider-Man from Japan with his giant mecha, Leopardin, show up for a page. Or my favorite page was a parody of the um, Hostess Fruit Pie things. Mm. And they had that Spider-Man. They had a one-page Hostess Fruit Pie ad only with these psychic vampires showing up. Yeah. <laughs> see, this, by the way, is my rebuttal to the this is what happens when you get you know, real fans of Spider-Man to write a Spider-Man film. No, that is what happens when you get real fans of Spider-Man to do a Spider-Man film. It's 628 pages of script. It's all just like in-jokes and like, remember this bit? 
like these guys really know what they're doing when it comes to actually oh, yeah. like boiling a story down to what's important and and being able to give you something that's that that's stylish and stylized and fun and like this speaks to children like almost no other superhero film I've seen in ages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Art is about being able to communicate in emotional terms using your hmm. medium and these guys are artists also oh yeah it does what i think lego batman was setting out to do lego batman does it really well this one does it brilliantly okay i think i've i think i've said that like the the best compliment i can pay this movie is that it's what would happen if you had the lego movie but then you also put lego batman's arc into that yeah yeah yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, quick hashtag SOM hands up. Alex, would you watch a Penny Parker anime? Hell yeah. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You said anime there. Would I? You broke the podcast. Okay. Oh. No, no, no. You have got me we in can... a Schrodinger's cat situation. Hang on, no, 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 because we can watch it. We just can't do a podcast. That's the thing, that. yeah. Honestly... I watched an anime the other day. I'm not going to tell you what. <laughs> but that's oh, you tease. The thing is, it's not that I can't watch anime. It's that I can't talk about it because it is catnip for anime fans. You guys are super tenacious. And, you know, it's more power to you, but not, not this cat. Again, for the uninitiated, just me mentioning an anime that I once saw and quite liked tends to make anime fans say to me, you should do this. I'm not really all that interested. You should do this. I'm not really all that interested. You should do this. I'm not really all that interested. But this anime is special. I'm not really all that interested. Uh, uh, So yeah, the answer is yes, I would, but I wouldn't tell anyone about it. So... Austin Wilden asks, more of a fun fact than a question, but were you all aware that Penny Parker and Spider were created by Gerard Way, formerly of My Chemical Romance? Yes. I did know that. I always thought thought that was really cool. Okay. Uh, Folks, uh, don't use this to air your I know a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel J asks, questions related loosely to Into the Spider-Verse, since it won't be shown in theatres where I live until after the 20th, could I get your opinion on staggered movie releases in the digital age of internet spoilers? Stop doing them. It's bullshit, Daniel. We totally agree with you. In this world that we're... As much as what I said earlier, we're past that. Like, don't don't yep. do that. This is a this was sort of kind of worked in the '90s, maybe, but not now. Yeah, not there's no need for it anymore. There really, yeah. Isn't. I would say it. A movie release needs to be about as staggered as time zones. So it comes out in Australia twelve hours before it comes. Talking out Talking about a movie yeah. is a huge part of the experience of watching movies so like, we didn't get Ant-Man versus, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp until weeks and weeks after America that's why we never did a show on it because by the time we'd seen it you guys it would have been like ah that was out ages ago like there was no reason given for that and yeah it's, it's, it's mental and uh, as with region encoded discs should be done away with hell yeah because all they do is hurt movie fans I got uh, Russell Madness in the post earlier today on Blu-ray and DVD, and I can't watch the Blu-ray, just the DVD on my multi-region DVD player, because I'm not going to shell out for a multi-region Blu-ray player. So I'm just going to have to watch 
uh, Jack Russell pissing in a wrestler's mouth in standard definition. <laughs> that may be a good tragedy. <laughs> Check out the We Hate movies on that one. It's brilliant. <clears throat> okay. And the extra stupid thing about this is they will make more money. If they do away with this, they can sell their stuff to more people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the, re- the region encoding thing is because in some territories it's distributed by these guys, and in some territories it's distributed by these mm-hmm. guys, and they're, they're grasping at the, the coppers. But it doesn't matter because the only people importing Blu-rays that aren't available in their country really care about movies. And in those cases, just let the other territory get the money for it. Like, if you have no intention of releasing Russell Madness over in the UK, and they don't. Okay. That, does that amount to protectionism? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, nasty business, Jack Russell Terrier wrestling. It would be an awful shame if it were to get squashed. Okay, so Jojo Part 5 asks, after seeing the Spider-Man movie, have you guys seen any fan art on the interest of the character and which one have you liked? Be seeing a ton of Penny Parker art, both and safe for work and not safe for work, but fantastic art regardless. And you have Moving just the fuck on. Why yeah. we wouldn't Google anything like that? Yeah, no, <laughs> it's nope. dangerous. Moving the fuck right on away. <clears throat> James Batchelor asks, who worked out which Spider-Man was the one from our universe, Earth Six One Six, and how did you feel about their portrayal? Or was it just me being a geek? So Peter B. Parker was the one from our universe, Earth Six One Six. And uh, I also would like to add to that that I've seen online articles that list Peter B. Parker as the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Peter Parker because of similarities of his actions in those little montages, like he kisses MJ upside down. Those same articles declare him to be the one true 616 Peter Parker. So my question is, firstly, is Tobey Maguire the 616 Spidey? No. No. Okay. And secondly, is there a quote-unquote real Peter Parker? No. 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 Okay, so moving the fuck (laughs) off... Yeah, who cares? The word true in this case is loaded. It invalidates all the other Peter Parkers and Mileses and Gwens and Pennies and Spider-Hams. And it steps on the whole idea that Spider-Man can be anyone. That inspirational thought that any kid who pulls on a Spider-Man costume mask, as sported by Miles in this film, for much of his runtime, can really be Spider-Man. It's him pulling off that mask so famously in the trailer and revealing that he wasn't just regular Peter Parker that makes this so powerful because it means that kids who don't look like Peter can go, that's me. I'm Spider-Man. There is one Peter Parker who has spent decades and decades and decades being Spider-Man. Steve Ditko and Stan Lee's creation from 1962, a version or variation of whom still exists in Marvel Comics today. And he's the guy we're most familiar with. The prime from which all others extend. Him and variations on him that have turned up in various animated shows and indeed movies. But that doesn't make him the true one. 616 uh, Peter Parker has done all kinds of stuff and probably like the, the true 616 one will never really be in anything because there's just too much continuity. And continuity is the killer of enjoyment when it comes to movies. Not always, but sometimes... If it is clung to aggressively, if it is used to exclude people, if it is a case of you must be this learned to enjoy this movie. Infinity War is a fine film, even if you don't know who everyone is. But Black Panther, to which very little continuity in the preceding 17 films is really necessary, is considerably stronger. 
continuity can also be genuinely toxic when it is used to frame the debate over whether a long-running fantasy series did or did not fulfill your expectations and prescribed storylines. Okay, serious now. Why might this be one of the best Stan Lee cameos? Lent extra power by his recent death, but still fantastic were he alive today. It's a serious scene, and usually he, he gets a joke scene. He's specifically addressing the theme of the film, and he doesn't do that in most of his cameos. The other thing that I think is important is he addresses the theme, but he's also talking about it. It always fits eventually, which is sort of like a thing with Spider-Man, is that nothing ever works out for Spider-Man immediately, almost more than any other superhero. Like, Spider-Man really has to just pound his head against a wall for a while to be able to break through. But once you get knocked down and get back up a couple times, that's when the suit's gonna fit. I'm going to miss him. Yeah, we were friends, you know. Can I return it if it doesn't fit? It always fits. Eventually. I'm not scared I'm not scared Need the brother stars I'm not scared Of the dark Of the dark mm -hmm. How does this compare to the MCU films? Well, for starters, so much nicer to look at, by and large, than everything apart from, like, maybe yeah. Guardians 2, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok. Oh, colour! Yeah. Lots of Lots it! Lots of it. <laughs> but like, just the editing is amazing to look at on this. If you actually look at the amount of times they split the screen, 70s style, but just in a way that is not overloading your eye, but just is, is, is you can take it all in and, and get various motions all at once. It's what Ang Lee wished that he could do with Hulk. Yes, yes I said I that the other day. It really does feed into the comic book brought to life nature. You've got the dot shading. You have the panels. You have a page turn wipe in this movie. It's yeah. bananas. Yeah. 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 I think <laughs> and it's part great. of it, I think part of it, honestly, is that they have had the courage to satisfy their audience, but not desire all the audience. Yeah. Which is, again, how you make fantastic art. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes us stand out, too, along with a lot of the Marvel movies, is that these filmmakers really seem to understand their characters and what makes them tick. That's the big thing that it comes down to. That's, they really get their characters. So it's skill, dedication, research, and hard, hard graft. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, where can people find your stuff? Uh, let's start with Bob. Uh, I am the, uh, my name's Bob Chipman. Uh, sometimes I refer to you under the movie Bob handle or production label, whatever that counts as now. Uh, I'm on social media at, uh, at, under, uh, at the underscore movie Bob on uh, Twitter, uh, on uh, YouTube, on the movie Bob channel. I am the uh, weekly film critic at geek.com. Uh, and I am the uh, uh, back on staff at The Escapist as the video producer for Escape to the Movies on uh, Fridays, the Game Overthinker on the new Game Overthinker on Thursdays, and the Big Picture on Mondays, and several other things cycling throughout the. Uh, what day is it? Uh, Saturday. 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 <laughs> I mean that was rhetorical, but thank you very much. I <laughs> 
Again, Bob, thank you so much for coming back on when you have been burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, no problem, man. No problem. Maya, where can people see you? I was recently a guest on the Canon Rinse podcast. As I've mentioned before, look for issue number 342, our episode on Final Fantasy VI, which is my favorite game of all time. Very proud of that one. Also, just looking down the pike, uh, lots of stuff up to and including Avengers Endgame, which have finally has a title. So, yay, finally has a title. Hopefully <laughs> I'm still in the movie somewhere. So, be looking out for me in that. Uh, some other stuff coming down the pike is uh, a new DC property called Doom Patrol, which I've been on a few episodes of so far. I really hope it's good. It seems like they're having a little bit more fun with this one, so I really hope Doom Patrol is going to be one of the standout DC things in the in the next coming months. So be on the lookout for me there as well. Okay, so nice. yeah, you heard it here, folks. You've now got to go and see Avengers Endgame to catch Maya. Okay. <laughs> yeah. As if everybody and their mother is not already going to see it. Regardless, <laughs> I, I don't need to. Endgame, but now they know Maya's going to be in it. Absolutely. Okay, uh, Brendan, where can we uh, uh, find your stuff? I contribute regularly to Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, I'd actually like to plug a, a, fr- a buddy of mine's work. Um, he's also a Brendan, but he, he's Brendan Foley. He just put up an article about Spider-Verse. It's fantastic. You should definitely read that on Synapse. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at BLCAg new or you can check out my my longer form personal blog stuff at normannerd.blogspot.com and caro and debbie uh you can find us at sequentially-yours.com uh where we go into comic books and comic book related media uh sort of deep dives close readings and we are both uh pretty active on twitter caro is moon panther 22 and i am best at 8300 feel free to chat with us We'd, we'd love to hear from you If you're on our Patreon at the $5 level or above, you can currently enjoy an extra 40 minutes of Ant-Man and the Wasp, as that show ran long, and this show ran long too, so there's going to be an extra 42 minutes eh, of Spider-Verse for you guys. Here's a little preview of that stuff, as well as other quick reviews that I've done recently. Looking to the future, Ghost Soundtracks asks, would it be possible in the future for Tom Holland's Spider-Man or Tom Hardy's Venom to cross over with the Spider-Verse as animated versions or even live-action versions interacting with these animated characters? Reverse Roger Rabbit style? Or Eddie when he goes to Toontown? Okay. The 2099 storyline is that it's a future... Like, Alchemex is like that story's version of the company in Blade Runner that does all of the stuff. Based on the way that China's incredibly dishonest state-run box office reporting department calculates out on that, we're going to see about 20% of that. But they get to tell the press that they have a giant opening number in China. I'm glad you said that so we didn't have to. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what's a free-to-use IP that hasn't been done in years? Robin Hood? Get out of my mind! I can't, I live there. And you kind of have to sort of like run with it when Tom Hardy speaks because he has a different voice in every film and this time he talking like that. One thing struck me, this new Korean lady playing Nagini, who's this unfortunate carny performer who has to turn into a snake. And at the end of Deathly Hallows, when Harry's about to get killed by Nagini in the stairwell fight and Neville leaps out of nowhere and cuts her head off. And it's this triumphant moment of, yes! I'm not going to be going, you killed Nagini. She never even had a chance to be good. I'm going to be thinking, you just killed Snape. Fuck you. 
This is not adding complexity. It's a confusing decision. So that was Robin Hood, Venom, and the Crimes of Grindelwald, which, as we say on the quick review, we won't be doing a full show on until all the Fantastic Beasts films are done. So if you want to hear an in-depth take on it, the quick review is the best place for that. And need I remind you that our $15 patrons get a sponsorship credit every episode. So a thank you to some new faces this time around. There's Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, he's relatively new, Matthew A. Seibert, he's new, Benjamin Biddle, he's new, Joseph Gluck, Sean Duran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thank you to everyone who has joined the Patreon recently, regardless of what tier you're at. It's doing really well right now, which makes me feel like we're making people happy and giving people a lot of things to think about regarding movies, which is our job. Next week, we will either be doing Goodwill Hunting or Bumblebee. You are just going to have to wait and see. Keep an eye on Twitter for the next lineup of questions. Whatever happens, there will be another hashtag SOM hands up. I don't think we're going to take as many questions ever again because this was bananas. B A N A N A S. But thank you so much for basically giving our show all the ammo we needed and more. To our guests, Bob Chipman, Maya Santandrea, Brendan Agnew, Karu Nagisa, and Debbie Morse, thank you so, so much for being on this very special episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you as well. <laughs> and we are going to leave you with Elevate by DJ Khalil. And I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out. Stepped out of my zone. my zone. I had to get out all alone. alone. And figure it out on my own. My own. And I know what I really want now. Can't stop me, can't break me. But don't kill me, go make me. Shoot for the stars, don't save me. And now I see clear and hasty. Gotta go hard. Gotta go hard. I ain't got time to waste. I ain't got time. I gotta go high. Gotta go high. I gotta elevate. I gotta elevate. They wanna fight. They wanna fight. I'm just gonna let them hate. I'm just gonna let them hate. I gotta go high. Gotta go high. I gotta elevate. I gotta elevate. You gotta choose a side. You gotta choose a side. You gotta pick. You gotta do what's right. Or you gonna lose the fight. You gotta gotta go high. Slinger to a gunslinger, no millimeter. This is my arena. I'm the black widow with a bad stinger, and I make you scream like a bad singer. I'm everything that you wanna be, plus more. Since there's no heroes anymore, jump out the window, then put the mask on. Who the bad man that a man got a bash on? Hope we'll never link up. Blink and you will see us. Dumb prince about the ink up. See me in the NYC. You can never swing my knee. No. Hope we'll never link up. Blink and you will see us. Dumb prince about the ink up. See me in the NYC. I'm gonna be IG. Yo, baby slam. To me, I just plan to be something powerful for my family. Proud to balance life and my sanity. Show a different side of humanity. So amazing, keep appraising. Save you from a home invasion. Chasing robbers from the bank. You facing friendly neighborhoods. Gotta go hard. Gotta go hard. I ain't got time to waste. I ain't got time. I gotta go hard. Through the nighttime when the light shine, I go python. I'm falling on my last lifeline. There's no way in my right mind. My city up on my back tight. How can I possibly act right? I'm Robin Hood, I'm the black knight. I 
know you heard about my last fight Cause I win over and over again Battling evil, I'm hoping to win Fighting my demons, I'm nice for a reason Enticed with the bleeding, I'm showing my sins How can you expect me to stay sane? Protect me, my technique Go X-speed on highways and jet skis I jump off this building To save these civilians My strength and my honor Is trusted by children I'm ready and willing To fight all these villains No chaos or killing My style is so brilliant My God Gotta go hard. Gotta go hard. I ain't got time to waste. I ain't got time. I gotta go hard. 